Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn. We're going to stay in the book of Psalms again this week. We're going to skip forward to a few, and we're going to go to Psalm 51 this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. So Psalm 51, we'll read it in a moment. So have you ever thought, maybe you've thought this before, that you've seen somebody, somebody commit a certain act, or do something, or, or you've witnessed it yourself, or maybe you've done it yourself. And, and when you see the other person do it, you say, you know, that, that's just too much. That's just too far. I don't know how they could ever come back from that. That was just too wicked. That was too sinful of an act. They could never come back from that. What is God going to do with that person? Maybe you've thought that uh, before about somebody, something you've witnessed with your own eyes. And so this morning... Uh, Last week we looked at Psalm 14, right? We saw the indictment of the human heart, our true selves in and of ourselves apart from God, how we are wicked. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. All have turned aside. There's no one who seeks God. But this week we're going to look at the kind of heart that God forgives. And so many of the Psalms, uh, if you've, you know, all 150 Psalms, many of them can be appreciated and understood and, and and used in worship without any kind of context or background uh, behind the psalm, right? Many times it's praise to God and and all of those things. But some psalms, including this one this morning as much as any, helps to understand the background behind why the psalm, why the poem was written. So we're going to look at this psalm and we're going to look at why did David write this? And so... Uh, If you look in your Bible, there's probably a little heading or an introduction or something before the words of the actual Scripture. And so we're not sure if those, I mean, those titles or those introductions to the psalm probably weren't original, but nonetheless, they're very, very old at the very least and are pretty reliable. So it's trustworthy that the title of this psalm actually depicts the true background and history around it. And so we're going to see what it looks like to truly come to the Lord in confession and repentance. What does that heart look like when we see the horror of our own sin and we see our, that our only hope is to simply just rely on God's mercy, nothing in and of ourselves? And so we're going to read this psalm and we'll look at, we'll be reminded of some of the events that led up to this, and then we'll go from there. So let's read together Psalm 51. Again, the title says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Let's read the psalm. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, as we've read your word, Lord, help us to receive it. Lord, with an open heart, receptive to your word, and guide my heart and my lips, my mouth, as we look at this together. Lord, what are we to do now in light of this truth in your word? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So David is pouring out his heart. I mean, this is as much a heart pouring in the scripture as you can get. And so, but what, what led King David to write this? I mean, isn't this the man after God's own heart? Isn't this the man that God appointed to be king over Israel after Israel failed and who they wanted as king? And so what led to this? I mean, what has he done that is so sinful that he needs to write these words? And so let's refresh our minds and let's rewind back some months. Uh, we don't know exactly how long, but somewhere around eight, nine, ten months or so. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is, he sent out men for battle, right? And in the springtime, usually that's when they would send out men for battle because the weather is usually nicer and so on. And, but unlike usually when, when the king would send out men to go battle, he would go with them. But in this time, David remained home. And so he's walking around one evening, and possibly after, after coming up from a nap. It says he got up from his couch, right? So he might have been napping for all we know. We don't know. And so he's walking around on the rooftop, right? And he looks and he sees a woman bathing. That's not something you see every day. And he, the scripture says she was very beautiful. And so, so he sees her bathing and he goes to his servants and he says, who's that? Who is that? And they say, uh, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, newsflash, the wife of somebody. So David has already possibly been criticized for remaining at home when when kings usually go off to battle with their, with their army. And so now he's walking around the, the rooftop. He's lusting after another woman when he himself is married. And we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that a king is not to have many wives. So he's already married. He's lusting after this other woman who he learns she has married herself. And does he stop there? No, he doesn't stop there. He asks, 
he goes the further step and asks for her to be brought to him. He says, bring her to me. Not to just have some casual conversation. They lie together. Or if you have a King James, it says they knew each other, right? We know that doesn't mean they just exchanged names and handshakes. And she conceives a child. They lie together. She conceives a child. And so, of course, there's no phones at the time. There's, no, uh, there's not even telegrams or anything like that. There's no high-speed rail to go and quickly uh, get the message out to David. So she sends a message to him and says she's with child. She says, I'm pregnant. And But wait, but her husband is off at war. So if people find out she's pregnant, they're going to know, well, Uriah's off to war, so it's not him. So they're going to know that it's not her husband that is the father of this child. So everybody's going to find out. Everybody's going to find out that something happened. And so everyone's going to know that her husband is not the father. And so David says, you know what? I know. I'll cover this. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll cover it. Nobody will find out. So he says, okay, I, I, I got a plan. I'll bring her husband back from war. I'll bring him home just kind of randomly and say, go have a good time with your wife. I know everybody's out to war and fighting and everything, but just go, go ha spend a night with your wife and, and enjoy yourself for at least one evening, right? And then, and then, okay, well, when Bathsheba is, when it's disclosed that she's pregnant, oh, well, it must have been that time that Uriah went to go visit her, right? So long story short, after several times of David attempting to get Uriah to go spend a night at home with his wife, he just can't do it. And, and Uriah says he's unable to do so. He says, how can I do this when all my other fellow men are out fighting war? And so he doesn't feel right about it. And so in order to cover his own tracks, instead of stopping there and simply just dropping in and saying, you know what, I just got to gotta deal with it, David says, no, I'll go the step further. I'll have this man killed so that he never finds out what happened. So King David, the king chosen by God, the man after God's own heart, anointed by Samuel to lead Israel, has not only committed adultery, he's sinned against his country, he's sinned against Israel, he has not represented the nation of Israel, God's people, well in this act. Not only that, but now he's committed murder. He's had this man killed on the battlefield. His plan, he, he had... Uh, you're right, he tells the other soldiers, you know, go to, to a part of the, of the battlefield where you have the most valiant men on the other side. And then go over there and then retreat so Uriah is all by himself to fight off the army all alone. And he dies. So he sinned against Israel. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband Uriah. And now, so Bathsheba hears about her husband's death and she mourns. And then she goes and returns to David and she bore him a son. But the story doesn't end there. Go to the next chapter. Or, uh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. At the end of the chapter, look at the, if uh, later on, you can look at the last verse of chapter 11. It's such a subtle little reminder, but it's so powerful. The last verse of chapter 11, after all of this, the scripture says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Such powerful words, so subtle. It's almost like we're reminded, you know, God knows what's going on. God knows this. David might try to hide it from everyone, but he can't hide it from God. God knows exactly what happened, and he was not pleased. So if you have your, uh, go ahead and turn now. I'm going to read a portion in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Sorry, I should have told you to turn there before to give you time. But go ahead and if you want, you can turn to chapter 12 in the book of 2 Samuel. 
This is when the prophet Nathan comes to pay David a visit. He says, David, I got a story to tell you. Just randomly, just knocks on the door and says, you know what, I want to share this story with you. Let's see how David is confronted with his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The scripture says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David didn't get it. This is a parable in the Old Testament. And what does Nathan say after this? He says, you know what, David? You are the man. You are the man who stole from the other man who only had one lamb. You had innumerable amount, more than you could ever ask for. And yet, you come and take from this one man and you have him killed. Instead of using something of your own, you take what he has. And David, even he, he convicted and sentenced himself. He says, in that story, if that's true, that guy deserves to die. And yes, David, you are correct. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So we see the mercy of God in that. That yes, David, you deserve to die. You deserve judgment. You have greatly sinned. But our God is merciful. And that's what we'll see this morning. And it's after this, after all of this, that David writes Psalm 51 that we read a few minutes ago. So with that in mind, let's look at this psalm and see what God would have for us to learn from it. What can we take away from it? We're not going to have time to go through every verse of the psalm, but we will, we will look at some parts. And it's, it's a little challenging when looking at a psalm because you can't exposit it in the same way that you can an epistle because it's ultimately it's a poem, right? There's a lot of repetition. There's different writing styles within, within the psalms. But nonetheless, we'll do our best and we'll give it a shot. So the psalm can be seen in kind of multiple parts, at least two parts, right? We can, verses 1 through 6, as we'll see, is David asking for mercy. He's confessing. He's asking for mercy. He's asking for forgiveness. Verses 7 through 19 are David asking for God to cleanse him. So I've asked for forgiveness. I've confessed my sin. Now, God, please cleanse me. And let's look at now verse 1, back at Psalm 51. The immediate words out of David's mouth, have mercy on me, O God. There's no preface. There aren't any excuses. There's no buts right off the bat. Have mercy on me, O God. There's no mention of, but I was lonely. I was weak. She tempted me by bathing. None of that. None of that. He's struck by the wickedness and the evil of his own sin before God, and he cannot deny the fact that his only hope 
is simply mercy from God. That's his only hope for life and continuing on. Does he, and so David asks for mercy. And it's very important to see on what basis does David ask for God's mercy. It's very significant. Does he say, have mercy on me, O God, because I am truly sorry. I just feel so terrible. Does he say, because I have done so many other good things. You know, God, I've, I've done a lot of good things for you in your kingdom. I've won a lot of battles for you. Does he say, have mercy on me, O God, because I just feel so terrible. Or because I am ashamed by Nathan's parable against me. Be merciful to me, O God, according to what? Not because of anything he has done. Not because anything we have done. Or because of his worth. But simply because of God's love and his mercy. There's no other appeal that David can make. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and abundant mercy. He's not entitled to God's forgiveness. Even as Israel's anointed king, we might think, you know, maybe God kind of owes him something or he's kind of earned, kind of he's earned some, some, uh, some stockpile of, of like sin debt that he can kind of, he's earned some kind of reserve to where if he sins is okay, he's earned some kind of forgiveness from God. No, none of that. When we come to God in confession and when we seek forgiveness from God, may let our only basis be because of God's love and mercy. Not anything about ourselves. Because anything about ourselves, we simply just deserve judgment. There's nothing about ourselves that warrants us God's forgiveness. So let us only root our pleading for God's mercy based upon his own character and his own goodness. Nothing about ourselves. That's the only true solid ground to base it in. Simply, I've sinned, I deserve judgment. And as David is basically saying, I've sinned, I deserve judgment, but I know that my God is merciful and I can appeal to him. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. So because of his sin, the picture here is like he's just like filthy clothes that just need to be cleaned. It's just, I mean, you know that, you've experienced that, right? Especially if you have little kids, right? You, you come home from the park or some, something and the clothes are all messy and it's like, man, these stink. I just, I can't even, just, just put it away. Get it out, get it out. It's got to be washed. It's too filthy. I can't, I don't even, even want to touch it, <laughs> right? And this is the picture here of the condition he's gotten himself in because of his sin. He says, cleanse me from my sin. There's nothing he can do to cleanse himself. It's only God who can clean him. It's only the Lord who can do this. There's nothing he can do. He's gotten himself into this mess. He, he's, as we'll see later, he's born into iniquity. There's nothing he can do to cleanse himself from his sin. He is wholly and utterly dependent upon God to clean him from his sin. He's descended to such a depth where it's like he's just in a hole. He's in a hole where it's dark and you try to touch around and it's all, it's just cold and hard. There's nothing he can do to get out of it. It's only God who can reach down and pull him out. Because if he's left to his own devices, he will be stuck there forever. The Lord, he's begging the Lord, reach down and cleanse me. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You've probably experienced this, especially, again, if you have little, if you have little children uh, or if you've had children before. 
you know, sometimes you can catch them in something. You know that they've sinned or they did something wrong, and they, they don't want to look at you, right? They, they look down. And, you know, that's our natural reaction, right? When we, when we sin, when we're looking at somebody and they know what we've done, we, we don't want to make eye contact, right? We don't want to look. And that's kind of just a, just a true, just a, an, in, an, inkling, uh, an indication that, well, something's wrong here. Well, what, what did you do? Right? And it's, he doesn't, it's, you know, and it's like if you've seen on trial when a guilty man is, uh, is, sitting, at the, is sitting at his desk with his lawyers and he doesn't want to look over to the victim's family, right? Because he knows he's sinned against them. He doesn't want to make eye contact. In the same way, it's like David's sin is just staring right back at him in the face. It's staring right at him. My sin is ever before me. Have you ever felt that? Like you just cannot even bear the weight of your own sin. You can't bear it. You wake up and it's all you can think about. You don't even feel like eating because you're just, you, you can't sit down and focus on anything other than your own sin. You're reflecting on only one thing. It's like even if you feel like eating, you don't allow yourself to eat because it's like, I don't even deserve to eat. I don't deserve to even go on. Why am I going to sustain my body? I simply don't deserve to even eat. You can't sleep because you feel the weight. It's just too much. You can't close your eyes and relax. It's just too much. Your sin is ever before you. This is what it is to be broken over your own sin. It might look different for others. It might look different in each person, but this is part of what it looks like to be broken over our own sin. Have you ever been there before? David was there. And it's easy, I'll say this, it's easy to kind of be broken in a sense over someone else's sin, right? Maybe someone sins against you and then it's just too much. It's just, it, I, I'm too distraught over it. I can't believe this happened to me or happened to someone I loved. We might lose sleep over it. We might lose our appetite. We just can't take it. It's like, it's just too much. I can't go on. But have you ever been this distraught over your own sin? Right? It's easy to look at someone else's and to be distraught over that. But have we been broken over our own sin? Has God broken you? Has God broken you? In verse 4, we see against whom all sin is ultimately committed. As David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So again, as we, look, as we saw earlier, David sinned against Bathsheba by calling his messengers to go and take her. He certainly sinned against Uriah the Hittite by stealing his wife and then having him killed. He sinned against his own army by deceiving them in what was really going on. What was the real situation? Why does Uriah need to die? Right? He sinned against Israel. But ultimately, he sinned against God himself. Ultimately. Not that his sin is exclusively against God, but it is most significantly against God. Why? Because ultimately it's, it's against God because it's God's law. It's God who says, do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not covet your, own, your neighbor's wife, which David did all of these things. He broke God's law. He sinned against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Interesting words. It's, he says it because God, he's acknowledging, you know, when God convicted me of this, God was right. God is blameless in this. I'm right to be disciplined by God 
for committing these acts. Not just one act. This, all of this, this whole situation is just ugly. And David says God is blameless in his judgment. He's not, in other words, it's like he's saying he's not bringing, he's not defending himself. He's not saying, well, but, you know, he's not making some appeal or, or you know, it, it's not really God, it's not really what it looks like or it's not really that, it's not really that bad. No, he's, God, you're blameless when you judge me on this. Simply just acknowledgement. There's no argument over, you know, he's not even like he's saying, you know, I know it was sinful, but it wasn't that sinful or, or it's trying to excuse it. He's not watering it down. And not only did David commit this gross sin, but he confesses and realizes that he was born into sin. So it's not even like he's saying, you know, I, I sinned this, I committed these acts, but I'm, I've done all this other good, and I'm, you know, I'm basically a good king or I'm a good man, but I've just committed some bad acts. No, he says this in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's so low, he's acknowledging and confessing, he's so low just from birth. It's not like he was born with a clean slate and just kind of, and then now he becomes sinful in, in 2 Samuel. No, I was, he says he's sinful from birth. He speaks to the whole human race, kind of as we saw last week. We're all born into sin and complete, utter depravity, total depravity. And it, we might say, well, maybe he's trying to excuse his sin. You know, maybe he's saying, well, I was just born this way, right? That's kind of a popular phrase now. I was just born this way. He's not excusing his sin. He's just acknowledging he's bringing himself down to an even lower level. It's, again, it's not even like, oh, I'm just naturally good, and then I just committed some wrong acts, and then now I've, I just got to get myself a little cleaned up. No, he's sinful from the womb. Again, as it's been said many times, we can no more understand the evil or the wickedness of our own sin Trying to explain that to a person is like trying to explain to a fish that he's wet. We can't understand it even more than a fish can understand he's wet. If you take him out of the water, it's like he's, gonna, if he's uncomfortable. He's, he, he can't breathe. He, he wants to go right back to the water. And that it, is, that it is for human nature. It's just natural to be walloped in sin. Just like a fish, all he knows is just wet water. He doesn't know what it is to be not wet. So to try to tell him what it is to be wet doesn't make sense. And that's us in our own human flesh. Even a beautiful, cute little baby, right, as innocent and as cute as they may appear, are still little. They're just sinners. They're just a lot smaller. They need God's grace as much as anyone. And so now we've seen he's confessing his sin. He's asking for God's mercy God, please have mercy on me according to your love, not according to anything of myself. And so now he transitions. Now we see his confession and asking for his forgiveness. And now he's asking now to be cleansed from God. Now we see the cleansing in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was used in Israel for ceremonial cleansing. We see it in Leviticus and in Numbers, uh, chapter, Numbers chapter 19 in particular, verses 16 through 19, where we see um, instructions for if, if you encounter like a dead body or, or, or bones or a dead animal, you're to uh, cleanse yourself. And part of that was cleansing yourself with hyssop. So it's like David is saying, Father, wash me. 
per, uh, perform the ceremonial cleansing on me that priests are to do uh, for others when encountering dead bones. Cleanse me from my defilement. Verses 8 and 9. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So it's like his bones and his whole personhood is just broken. Deep down within. You might not be able to see it on the outside, but it's there underneath. He, does not, he doesn't want to remain there. He doesn't just want to remain broken. He, he knows that his God, that Yahweh, has the ability to make him clean and to restore him again. But other than that, there's no other hope that he has. But he knows that his God is merciful. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart. Because at this point he's saying, my heart is just, is just bad. As, as, as you know, Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So I can't even understand my own heart. You know? So why? let's be cautious if we try to go judge someone else's heart. David's saying, I need a new heart. We need a new heart implanted by Yahweh, a heart transplant, if you will. So again, he might just think, okay, I committed this sin or these sins, and now I just need to move on, right? It's, it's just an action, right? I just committed this sin. I need to clean this up and, and somehow and, and confess of this one sin and move on. No, he's saying this happened because my heart wasn't right. Something went wrong before this happened. Right? His heart was not set on the Lord. He needs to be reminded and be given a heart that is focused on, the, on God the Father, the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes from, as we read in James chapter 1. Cast me not away from your presence, in, in verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So this is in it, you know, sometimes we might think or forget that the Holy Spirit was active, living and active in the Old Testament. And he wasn't born or didn't start working in Acts chapter 2. He was active before. And we see in a very explicit reference to the Holy Spirit uh, here in this verse. So unlike today, unlike today in, in the last days, as the New Testament calls it, God's Holy Spirit resides in every believer nowadays, right? And every believer never to leave, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you know Christ, God's Holy Spirit resides in you. God, you are God's temple, and the Holy Spirit resides in you and will never leave. This is, but this was not always the case. As we see in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of the Lord come upon Saul or come upon some other man or some other uh, woman, some other person, but then would leave, as we see in 1 Samuel chapters 15 and 16, Saul was rejected as king. And as a result, the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And then it says a demonic spirit came upon Saul. And so at this time, David is concerned. At this time, uh, he knew that the spirit of the Lord would come upon somebody temporarily and then might leave, it might, upon, might come upon them just to do certain acts and then depart. And David knows this. He doesn't want... God's Holy Spirit to be removed from him, especially how can I continue on as God's, as the King of Israel without his Holy Spirit within me? 
Not that he's going to lose his salvation, but that God's Holy Spirit would depart from him and would, would not be moving within his heart as he had been. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Rather than dwell on my sin, which is where I've been, as, as he's saying, which is where I've been for all these months, dwelling on my own sin. Rather than that, please restore the joy to me of your, of your salvation. Restore it to me, because right now I'm, I am just broken. In verses 16 and 17, we see this is where our hope is. Very profound words here. Verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And amen for that. A broken and contrite heart, God will never turn away as David is saying. And this is, very, this is illustrated very explicitly in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? In Luke chapter 18, where Jesus says, you know, there were these two men. There was this Pharisee who came, uh, came to the temple to pray to God. He basically prays about himself or he prays to himself and he says, God, I thank you. Thank you, God, that I, am, I tithe every week and I fast twice a week and I, I do all of this to serve you and Thank you, I'm not like this tax collector over here. Thank you. And then the tax collector over here says he doesn't even look up to heaven. He won't even look. He just beats his chest and says, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And Jesus says, to the shock of many people listening, especially the Pharisees, which one do you think was justified? I tell you the truth, the tax collector was justified when he went home that day. Because he simply realized he was, he was broken. He had a contrite heart that not even, not even have the, the audacity to even look up to God. Because he realized, he knew that he was sinful and needed mercy. Unlike the tax collector who just says, you know, thank you God that I'm not like this wicked guy over here. Jesus says, this one was justified. So what can we take away from this? We, have, we must own and confess our sin. So confess is a word that's used a lot in the Bible, right? And what does it mean to confess? Does confess simply mean just to say something or just to, just to inform another, right? When the scripture says to confess your sins to God, is it because God doesn't know what our sins are and he's like, please tell me so that then I can do something about it? No, he knows. We're not informing God of anything. That's, that's foolishness, right? but it means to say the same thing that God says about it. If God calls it sin, we ought to call it sin. That's the idea of confession, to say the same thing. The Greek word is homo legeo, homo, same in the Greek. To agree with God. God says that's sin. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm not going to try to, to contradict what he says. I call it sin. We confess it. We say the same thing that God says. And if we sin, but we deny it, right, then we make God out to be a liar and the truth is not in us, as we see in John chapter 1, verse 1. But rather, we acknowledge our sin before God, as, as the scripture says, that God would be true and every man a liar. 
and we, but rather we acknowledge that all sin is ultimately against God and that he is just to judge when we sin, just to discipline us when we sin. And on confession, uh, in Psalm 32, I'll read just a few verses from there, but David also writing Psalm 32, possibly he was writing about this same situation, the same situation here where he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, in other words, before I confessed, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My spirit was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you, the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So again, he's possibly speaking about the same situation here. And he's saying the, the utter pain and just utter misery that he experienced harboring this sin in his heart, not, not confessing it. And he says his bones wasted away. He held it inside. But as he did confess... Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, was merciful with him and forgave him. So leading up to that, he knew what he had to do. He knew he had to confess it. But like us at times, stubbornness and not wanting to confess his sin to God could be pride, could be shame. Uh, all this to say that if we, if you harbor secret sins in your heart based upon this scripture, know Know that God disciplines his own, as Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us. So it could be a sexual sin. It could be bitterness. It could be untruthfulness, something that maybe we think others don't, others don't know that we're carrying around with us. But know that, like it said at the end of, of the account with David, when it displeased the Lord, know that God, we're not fooling or keeping anything from God. We're not fooling the Lord. But when we do come to the Lord in confession and repentance, there is mercy. Our God is a God of mercy. And, you know, as I was thinking, uh, kind of thinking over this, you know, sometimes we may need, sometimes when we're really wronged, right, we may need time to process it. And, you know, maybe it's your child or someone else. We may, you know, when your child disobeys, or you, you may need time and say, you know what, I just, I can't, I'm just too upset. You, this was just too wrong. I need a minute. Just please go away, leave me for a minute, give me time, right? That might be us, that might be you. But the Lord always embraces a broken and contrite heart, unlike us. He never says, go away, I can't deal with it right now. If we come to him in contrition and humility and praise him for that, he never says, go away, I'm too angry with you right now. That is not the Lord. With Yahweh, there is forgiveness. And, you know, when you read the Bible, and that's because God, God never fails. God keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. And so when you read the Bible, and, you, you know, we can just pick out David here. When you read the scripture and you read all of this that David did, all of these, you know, it says Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands and, and all of this. And David, all of these victories and God and uh, being, 
and him being anointed by Samuel and God working through David, taking down Goliath and all of this. And you might begin to think, man, maybe this is the one, right? Maybe this is the one who's going to save us, right? This is the one who's going to deliver us. This is going to be our hero. But as we see in 2 Samuel and Psalm 51, we see David is no hero. There is no hero in the scripture other than Christ. Where David failed, where David failed, Christ is victorious. There's only one true hero in Scripture, and it's Christ who triumphed over sin and death. And so if you don't know him, if you're visiting here today or you don't know him, turn to him. He's your only hope when you stand before God. Are you really going to feel comfortable saying, I think my good outweighed my bad, or, you know, I, I went to church sometimes, or, or whatnot, or... you. Are, do you honestly, before the judge of all the earth, are we really going to be confident in and of ourselves, saying, this is what I have to offer you. This is why I ought to have eternal life. The only thing you ought to be banking on, the only hope that you can truly have, is trusting in the work that the perfect Son of God did on the cross. Taking the place of your sin, and now I can turn to Him, and now I say, there's nothing I can bring. It's only what He did for me on the cross. I trust in him and him alone. And as, as dirty and as filthy as our sin might be, I mean, forget it. The scripture says our righteousness is filthiness, is filthiness before God. So forget about our sin. As filthy as it may be before God, God's mercy is even greater. As it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin is abundant, when we come to God in repentance and faith and contrition before him, broken over our own sin, there is mercy and grace abounds all the more. So let us own and confess our sin before the Lord, knowing that when we truly do so, when we truly come to him in confession and faith, there is forgiveness to the God of mercy. Let's pray.